Hello and welcome to Peach Pod, a Georgia politics podcast. My name is Kyle Hayes and I am your host. And in your feed right now, you're going to find a few episodes that we posted over this last weekend. We are currently wrapping up our coverage of the 2018 primary elections for congressional and state legislative seats, and also finishing up our coverage of nonpartisan local elections in athens Clark County. In this episode, I'm talking with Carolyn Bordeaux. She's a Democratic candidate for Congress in the 7th Congressional District, and she's vying to take on Rob Woodall in the elections in the fall. Carolyn and I sat down to discuss some of the latest pressing issues facing Congress, where she stands on these issues, and what she would like to see done if voters send her to Washington in the fall. Just a note about our conversation, we spoke last week and we referenced the shooting at Parkland High School in Florida as uh, we discussed Bordeaux's stance on gun policy. This was before yet another tragic shooting at Santa Fe High School near Houston, Texas. So here I am speaking with Carolyn Bordeaux. So I'm now joined by Carolyn Bordeaux. She's a Democratic candidate for the party's nomination in the 7th Congressional District. She's aiming to take on Rob Woodall in this fall's elections. Uh, She's also a professor at the Andrew Young School of Public Policy at Georgia State University and a former director of the state Senate's budget office. Uh, Carolyn, thank you so much for joining the show. All right. Thank you for having me. Um, So could you start by just telling us a little bit about your background and why you want to be a member of Congress from Georgia? Sure. Um, Well, I guess to back up a bit, uh, I grew up in Roanoke, Virginia. I am the daughter of teachers and have really always had sort of a deep commitment to public service. Uh, When I graduated from college, I went to Washington. I worked for several U.S. representatives and worked for Senator Ron Wyden. And then after that, I went back. I got a master's and a Ph.D. in public administration with a focus in public finance and then came to Georgia in 2003 and have been teaching at the Andrew Young School at Georgia State ever since then. I took a leave of absence from 2007 to 2010 to be director of the Senate Budget Office in Georgia during the recession and so worked on the state budget uh, during a very difficult time. I was honored with a special resolution for significant service to the state of Georgia at the end of that, um, went back to the Andrew Young School, founded the Center for State and Local Finance. And so I tell folks, you know, I've spent most of my life, you know, teaching people who are going into public service. Um, Some of my students are elected officials. They are chief financial officers around the metro area. They are executive directors of nonprofits and, you know, do jobs like that. Um, So, yes, why then would I leave that and sort of a world of being behind the scenes uh, to running for office? And I tell folks there really is two two big things that push me into this. one was watching the healthcare bill uh, unfold, and it's just very hard to uh, observe the the policy malpractice around healthcare. Um, uh, we passed the Affordable Care Act. It was an honest effort to try to fix the really deep problems in our healthcare system, and then for whatever reason, the Republicans decided, you know, that they were going to just try to destroy the bill. And so they litigated against it. They defunded it. Um, They have done everything they can to make it fail. And in Georgia, of course, they did not expand Medicaid. And I've got this budget background. And so seeing the state not expand Medicaid and the problems that causes is 
really terrible. Uh, the state leaves on the table $2.2 billion a year. That's 500,000 people that would have health insurance if the state had expanded Medicaid. And it's really hard to watch that, them just turn their backs on that money and that help that could come to the state and would help it so much and help so many people. So that's one big push. You know, it's very hard to watch that. And I've been looking for a way to be involved. Um, and then the second big push was when Donald Trump Trump uh, was elected. I woke up on November 9th and found out that Donald Trump had been elected president. And I tell folks, you know, I just had to stand up for the country I believe in. And my country is not one that is sexist, racist, and isolationist. It is one that is diverse, inclusive, and global. And um, that's the other big push that really got me into this race. So we have a congressman here in the 7th who has voted 97% of the time with Donald Trump. And I am just not okay with that. So let's jump into healthcare a little bit. Like you said, Congress spent a lot of 2017 trying to repeal and replace the Affordable Care Act. It would have resulted in millions of people losing their health coverage. They ultimately failed, but it's not as if the health system is perfect on its own right now. Um, so what would you like to see happen on health care if you were to become a member of Congress? Right. So, um, yes, there, there are a lot of things that need to be fixed in our health care system. Um, but let's just start with the basics, which is that after the Affordable Care Act passed, uh, Congress turned over and was taken over by Republicans. And then they did not fund very important parts of the legislation that would cause premiums to go down. Um, and then they also didn't expand Medicaid. And this also means that those of us who have health insurance continue to cover a tremendous amount of uncompensated care. So we continue to see our premiums rise as we pay for uncompensated care and as some of the backstops in the Affordable Care Act were ripped away. So one of the things I talk about is, you know, a relatively straightforward path to health care reform is first to go back and implement the Affordable Care Act the way it was originally intended to be implemented, to actually fund the bill, expand Medicaid. Um, and then because so much destruction has happened to our health insurance system, there are people in the 7th District who are paying 2000 plus a month to have health insurance for their families. You know, we're paying extraordinary amounts. And so what we need to do now is to introduce a public option to the exchange that will compete with the private options and give families a low-cost alternative. Um, this is a little bit deep in the weeds, but um, <laughs> have you thought at all, or or is there any consideration of, you know, part of what was allowed in the Medicaid expansion under the Affordable Care Act is that the federal government would would, would carry 100% of the matching rate on Medicaid expansion for the first three years, and then that rate would slowly drop from 100% down to 90%. For states right. that did not expand, um, I know that there's been some talk about maybe offering that three-year 100% window to states to encourage them to expand. Is that something that you would support? Interesting. Yeah, I had not I have not heard that uh, being put back on the table, but absolutely I would. I think that would be great for Georgia. And that would be, you know, hopefully help us get off on the right foot. So 
Another thing, though, basically, really the one thing that congressional Republicans could kind of point to as one of their legislative accomplishments during this term would be the tax cut uh, bill that they passed last year. Um, are there changes that you would like to see to that bill? And if so, what changes would you support? Yes. So I am on the record as saying that that bill needs to either be massively overhauled or even repealed. Um I don't think it's a tax cut. I think it is a cash advance on our national credit card um, and one that is wildly distortionary and that it heavily benefits corporations and very wealthy individuals. Um, 70% of the benefits in the individual income tax cuts go to 20%, the top 20% of earners. And that is just terribly unfair. So there are a couple things I would like to see fixed. <laughs> there are more than a couple, but some of the big ones are, um, you know, with the corporate tax rate. Yes, we do have a corporate tax rate that is very high compared to other countries, and we do need to bring it down. Uh, but we need to clear out the loopholes um, that are riddled throughout our corporate tax system. Um, these include things like loopholes for, you know, hedge fund managers who pay, um, you know, very low taxes. It's uh, exemptions for private jets. I mean, they're things you can't even, they sound crazy um, that we have uh, tax breaks uh, for these kinds of things. Uh, so we need to clear those out and then we can lower the rate, you know, somewhat once we see what that will pay for. Um, the other thing is we need to rebalance our tax system so that we are giving, you know, middle-class families, you know, some relief and, so that we are supporting a living wage through our tax system. Um, one of the ideas that really has bipartisan support is an expansion of the earned income tax credit. And by doing that, that's really targeted at working folks who are making, you know, minimum wage, who are barely scraping by. And the idea is to readjust our tax system so that we we help supplement their salaries, you know, supplement the salaries of very hardworking folks so that they are able to make a living wage and support their families. So this is those are some of the changes I'd like to see in, in a tax bill. Um, so another big and, and divisive issue in Washington right now is the issue of immigration. There's considerations around penalizing immigrants for using public benefits and moves by the Department of Homeland Security to consider separating families uh, as they come to this country. Um, they argue, I think, as a way to try to deter people from coming in the long run. Um, but what do you think about uh, the conversation around immigration right now in Washington? And what would you like to see uh, be done on this issue if you were to go there? Yeah, I think we've lost our moral bearings uh, when we are talking about immigration. And I, you know, I invite any mother or father to think about what this means. You know, many of the people who are fleeing, you know, and coming across the border are coming from countries where they are afraid they're going to be killed, uh, often by gangs that are incredibly violent. And imagine you are fleeing that you come, you know, to a place of safety where you hope you can get some respite and you are separated from your children. I mean, I just I cannot imagine the horror of that. Um, that is not okay. Um, so I will firmly oppose that. Um, I also, you know, people should deeply think about what's happening with uh, DACA and with the Dreamers. Uh, last year, I was talking with some folks in Gwinnett, and a young woman told me a story about her sister. Uh, her sister had gone to Flowery Branch High School in Hall County. Um, she had come to get a job in Gwinnett, working at Gwinnett Medical Center um, as a nurse trainee. 
she went to her mother and said, hey, you know, I'm filling out all the paperwork to get this job. I just, I've got one line I can't fill in. Uh, can you give me my social security number? And her mother said, gosh, you know, I, I'm really sorry. I've never told you this, but I brought you over when you were one month old and you don't have a social security number. So this young woman, she could not get a job and she drifted, you know, for years, you know, struggling to find employment. And then when President Obama gave the dreamer status, she was able to get a job and move up and be productive. And now under President Trump, she faces deportation back to a country she didn't even know she was from. That is crazy. You know, again, we cannot do that. So I strongly support ensuring that the dreamers have some kind of recognized status immediately so that they can get a job and sustain it, you know, in the future. And, um, you know, and also they, they need to have some kind of, you know, quick path to citizenship as well. So those are, you know, two things in immigration that I think are quite important. So another thing that recently happened in this breakneck news pace that is D.C. these days is that President Trump announced that he would be re-implementing sanctions on Iran and effectively withdrawing the U.S. from the Iran nuclear deal. Uh, what do you think of uh, President Trump's decision? And can you describe for me what kind of oversight you think Congress should be providing on foreign policy issues? Right. So, you know, President Trump is being enormously destructive uh, on the foreign policy front. And, you know, Congress's role is somewhat limited, but clearly uh, needs to, you know, Congress is going to have to step up and create an effective check on the president with this. So, um, you know, one uh, analysis I read that I think is quite on point is that, you know, if President Trump were to get a deal in North Korea, that was the equivalent of the deal that we had in Iran, he would be enormously proud of it. So what he's done, though, right, is ripped up, you know, the equivalent deal with Iran and put us in an enormously dangerous position where Iran is now free to go and, you know, develop nuclear weapons. Not, nobody internationally is going along with us on this. You know, we are completely isolating ourselves and taking ourselves, you know, out of, you know, out of the discussions. Um, you know, an American leadership is really something that holds this world together, you know, it keeps the peace. And we are stepping away from this in a way that is very dangerous. Um, I will say also the trade agreements that he is all of a sudden ripping up just very cavalierly, like the Trans-Pacific Partnership. Um, he pulled us out of it. And then, you know, oh, wait, a few months later, wait, he wants back in. But there is no going back in. You know, we have no leverage anymore. Um so, yes, I think, you know, Congress does need to look for ways to, you know, to, to stop this as best it can. Um, a lot of the authority, though, for foreign you know, policy does rest with the president. Um, but there does need to be a check on him. Um, so another uh, issue that's been important locally is in response to the, the Parkland shooting, there's been a lot of discussion about the issue of guns uh, that has taken decidedly different directions between Republicans and Democrats. Uh, the Republicans currently running for governor have, are having kind of an okay corral of a primary over there. Um, but what would you yeah. uh, like to see done on the issue of guns if you were to go to Washington? Right. So this is another issue where I think that, um, you know, Republicans have just moved so far to the right that they are out of touch with, you know, even, you know, certainly independents and even many people in their own party. 
Um, so Parkland shooting, you know, I am a mother of a six-year-old son and I don't want to be afraid that when he goes to school, you know, that he might face, you know, some form of gun violence. That is terrifying to a parent. Um, so we do need to do some common sense gun safety things. So, you know, first of all, we need to have universal background checks that cover the gun show loophole. And I believe a huge majority of Americans support this. We need to also make sure that those universal background checks have the information fed to them so that, you know, people can make intelligent decisions about who should and shouldn't have a, have a gun. Um, I do support reinstatement of the assault weapons ban. I do support um, banning high-capacity magazines and bump stocks. You know, these are very straightforward, reasonable, middle-of-the-road gun safety you know, measures that I will protect our communities and protect our children. Uh, so you're a part of a class of a record number of women that are running for office across the country this year. Um, a lot of this is in response to the president and the rhetoric out of the White House in the lead up to his election and since. Um, so can you just describe for us kind of what this moment and being a part of this class of women running for office means to you? Yeah, I think that you know, a lot of women woke up in a certain sense, you know, when Donald Trump was elected and, you know, realized that a lot of things that we believed in and, you know, had fought for for many years were really going to be lost. Um, I think, you know, there, there are a whole host of issues from making sure insurance coverage companies cover contraceptives making sure they cover maternity care, making sure we retain, you know, the ability to control our own bodies, you know, choice, um, fighting towards equal pay for equal work, um, you know, making sure people have health care coverage. These are all really, you know, basic needs for women. And, you know, one, Donald Trump is extremely disrespectful to women. Uh, he's incredibly disrespectful to Secretary Clinton. And I think there's sort of, at one level, a visceral response to that kind of, you know, disrespect. But also he stands for a whole host of issues that are, you know, very much, you know, contrary to what women need. I will say, you know, yes, there are a record number of women running, but we only make up 20% of the representatives in the U.S. House. So even with this enormous wave and surge of energy, um, we are only moving towards parity, right? We are not even at parity yet. We're coming up on the election on May 22nd, and right now your opponents are actually Democrats. They're not uh, President Trump or the Republicans right now. Um, so could you just describe for us what sets you apart from your fellow Democrats in this primary? Right. Um, so, you know, they are good people and I, I respect them. Um, there, there are some things that really do set me apart. And I would say, you know, one is that I have the background and capacity to be very effective on behalf of the people of the 7th District. And one of the reasons I've received, you know, a number of endorsements. I've been endorsed by Ambassador Andrew Young, by Congressman Hank Johnson, by Senator Max Cleland. Um, by some state um, House and Senate uh, representatives as well, um, is because of that and because I have 
you know, really a lot of background in writing legislation and moving public policy forward. I would say the other thing that really distinguishes me is that I set up a campaign that can really win in November. Um, already, uh, folks are talking about um, the challenge to Woodall, and generally it is my campaign that they're talking about uh, when they talk about that challenge. And a week or so ago, I was endorsed by Emily's List. And that is because, uh, you know, because I have a campaign that can win in November. And that's a signal from, you know, a national organization um, that this is going to be one of the frontline and most competitive races in the country um, because of the campaign that I've stood up. Well, if people want to learn more about you, how can they do that? Yes, come help. <laughs> uh, would love that. So my um, webpage is carolynforcongress.com. Really simple to remember and to find. Um, take a look at the webpage. You can see where I stand. And we are looking for volunteers. We are knocking doors every day, all day, and making phone calls and reaching out to folks. So anybody who wants to help, you know, we are, we love the help. All righty. Well, Carolyn, thank you so much for joining the show. All right. Thank you for having me. That's our show for the week. If you like what you heard, share the show with a friend and go over to iTunes and give us a rating or a review. It really helps other people find our show. We'll be back with another episode of Peach Pod next week. Until then, take care, y'all. Oh, 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 oh,